Hi, my name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to the Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 12. We're going to be reading from Genesis 22 to 23, Job 11 and 12, and Proverbs 2, verse 9 through 15. Genesis 22. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from the heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, and because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off to Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She was born sons to your brother, Naor. Uz, the firstborn, Buzz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Zidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. 
Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Naor. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also had sons, Tabah, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died in Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from behind his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is it that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the border of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Job 11. Then Zophar the Nemathite, okay, starting at Job 11. Then Zophar the Nemathite replied, Are these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom, for true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sins. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. If he comes along and confines you in prison and convenes a court, who can oppose him? Surely he recognizes deceivers. And when he sees evil, does he not take note? But the witless can no more become wise than a wild donkey's colt can be born human. 
Yet, if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then, free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as waters gone by. Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope, and you will look about you and take your rest in safety. You will lie down with no one to make you afraid, and many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail, and escape, with elude, and escape will elude them. Their hope will become a dying gasp. Then Job replied, Doubtless you are the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. But I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? I have become a laughingstock of my friends, though I call on God and he answered. A mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Those who are at the ease have contempt for misfortune, as the fate of those whose feet are slipping. The tents of Mardars are undisturbed, and those who provoke God are secure. Those God has in his hand. But ask the animals, and they will teach you. Or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. Or let the fish in the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the tongue tastes food? Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? To God belong wisdom and power. Counsel and understanding are his. What he tears down cannot be rebuilt. Those he imprisons cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there is drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and insight. Both deceived and deceiver are his. He leads rulers away, stripped, and makes fools of judges. He takes off the shackles put on by kings and ties a loincloth around their waist. He leads priests away, stripped, and overthrows officials long established. He silences the lips of trusted advisors and takes away the discernment of elders. He pours contempt on nobles and disarms the mighty. He reveals the deep things of darkness and brings utter darkness into the light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and disperses them. He deprives the leaders of the earth of their reasons. He makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in darkness with no light. He makes them stagger like drunkards. Proverbs 2, 9. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you, and understanding will guard you. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men, from men whose words are perverse, who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, who delight in doing wrong and rejoice in the perverseness of evil, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. For me, the theme of the passage today is, I surrender all. And yes, we're still in Genesis. Haha. <laughs> According to the Logos Bible software, Genesis in Hebrew is the second longest book, or should we say scroll, of the Bible. Jeremiah is first and Psalms is third. I remember when I used to read chapters and passages like this um, in the Bible on my own, and to be honest, it felt a bit like I was reading somewhat random people, somewhat random places, and the details seemed, I just didn't know what they meant or how they were connect connected. 
It felt a bit slow, and I felt that I couldn't really admit it out loud and that I didn't really understand it. And if I did, it felt a bit boring. But then, but then I discovered Hebrew Bible scholars and incredible resources, both online and at Biola, that really changed everything for me and made stories like this super interesting and meaningful to my understanding of scripture and who God is and what that means for my life. And I'm so excited to do my best to share what I'm learning um, as I'm learning it with you. Okay, I wanna start by talking about trees. Hold, hold on with me for a second. Trees. Um, they, they conjure this imagery and they activate something that uh, in the ancient Hebrew language was, was representing something important and interesting. So Dr. Carissa Quinn, Dr. Tim Mackey, and John Collins in their Genesis Scroll podcast series describe how tree imagery activates a reminder of creation with fruit-bearing trees, and then in the center of the Garden of Eden, in the center of the whole earth where heaven and earth were connected, there is the tree of life. Trees are used in the Old Testament to, to earmark places where God and humans work together and specifically where God provides and he blesses. In Hebrew, the word for tree, bush, vine, and wood similarly are designed to activate this imagery, especially when it's on a high mountain. And this is also super cool because if we zoom out and fast forward, it's on a wooden cross on a hill that Jesus ultimately died and provides a way for us to be restored and redeemed to him. So Dr. Quinn, Dr. Mackey, and John talk about how Noah's boat was made of wood and the ark with the animals conjures up this micro-Eden type of imagery. And then Noah plants a vineyard, which is also his downfall, like in Genesis 2. Next, Abraham is blessed when he is next to the oak tree in our previous reading. And it was here that God also brought Abraham into God's thinking on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was by this tree that a feast and food were offered that in Hebrew use similar language to the Levitical feast we'll talk about in the future. Then we have this interesting yet tragic story of Hagar and Ishmael being exiled into another mini Eden-like story where Hagar put her son under a bush because she doesn't want to watch him die as they are thirsty and have no provision. The language in this story is similar to Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 2. Then a messenger of God opens her eyes and she sees the water and God blesses them. One qualification, when God describes Ishmael as becoming a wild donkey, we might view this as negative, but Dr. Crayer points out that in Hebrew, this would have conjured up images of what we might imagine as a wild group of Mustangs. So the metaphor... Um, is different and it conjures different imagery. The point was God was telling this enslaved and exiled mother and son that they will be free and that God will make them into a great nation. Note how God can and does bless both the chosen and the non-chosen in this story. I think it's such an incredible testament to who God is. Meanwhile, Abraham and King Abimelech make an agreement by a tree at a well where Abraham gives seven lambs and pays for a well he has already dug, which seems illustrative of the cost and generosity required. Um, it's a sign of reconciliation and blessing, making peace with a man. Remember, Abraham had tried to deceive in the past. So in this in this part of that story, we were seeing how Abraham was acting more in the role of being a blessing uh, to, to the nations and others. Biblical scholars see a number of mini Eden-like stories and moments in the Abraham narrative and in other 
parts of the Genesis story where God shows up and asks the do or do not, and some might see it as a test, but really God is asking for our trust, our surrender to him, all-knowing and all-wise, because that's what he is, so that He's what he says to do or don't do, our faith in him, it outweighs our fear or our, our force of getting the outcome that we want. So we're not, we're not acting in fear and we're not trying to make something happen. There is division between wives in the story, brothers, and Abraham the father and his first and second born son, between neighbors, and next, as we zoom into this story, between Abraham and the son, and really the future that God had promised him. It's another, do you trust me moment, can you rely on who you know I am and my promises. So in the story we read, Today, God calls Abraham and Isaac to go to the mountains. There is no internal dialogue for Abraham or Isaac shared with us, so we don't know what they're thinking or feeling. Here's a tree moment again. They are asked to cut trees, giving us the imagery of another place where there is opportunity to choose God and what he called us to or not. Father Mike Schmitz points out how they are more like a father and son team it is traditionally understood that Isaac was most likely an adult, probably 30, which may be affirmed by the fact that Abraham, who was very old, gave Isaac the wood to carry up the mountain. Remember, it was just the two of them. So we really can't expect a child to carry this type of load or the amount needed for a sacrifice up a mountain. The narrative slows down as we read what's happening play by play on top of this mountain. God is asking for an I surrender all. Their futures hang in the balance. I hear this in my life. God wants a full surrender. I love the song. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. It's an everyday decision in our quest as vice regents in the kingdom of God to present and have a posture, an attitude, a practice, a thinking of I surrender all, where God is integrated in all of it. It's not additive, it's not separate, it's not extra, it's everything. And Father Mike Schmitz also highlights how this father and son team were, were both, they were both willing to sacrifice for the covenant, for the call of God, and how this reminds us of God the Father and Jesus, uh, God's son, and what they did for the covenant with us. Dr. Mackey, Dr. Quinn, and John point to the similar similarity in language, the repetition to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Knowledge moment with Adam and Eve. Except, in all caps, this, this story is a full inversion of the Eden failure. Here, Abraham and Isaac are willing to give up their futures, their life, what they want instead for God, trying to make what they want to happen in the way they want it to, laying that aside— and choosing God and what he wanted and how he wanted it done. Similar to the Hagar and Ishmael story where she put her son under a bush, here in this story, a lamb was caught in a bush, and where Ishmael was saved in the story of um, Hagar and Ishmael in exile. In this story, the lamb that was caught in the bush was sacrificed. Oh my goodness, I see what Jesus is going to do for us, what we know he did do for us. It's so wild and wonderful reading the Old Testament with biblical scholars. So in the end here, we read about how Abraham's niece is born, Rebecca, and then we learn that Sarah dies, and Abraham buys a cave in a field with trees. And like Abraham, Rebecca leaves and is blessed, and then Abraham marries again and then will die. 
birth, death, next generation. The Cave in Machpelah, so cool. It's a long story about Abraham negotiating. The nations want to give him the land in the cave, but Abraham wants to buy it. And Dr. Tim Mackey, Dr. Quinn, and John point out it's the first and only piece of land Abraham ever buys, and it's for death. It's like the first down payment of the promise, and they'll be buried here. The paragraph at the end of chapter 23, the cave, in Hebrew word that comes, the Hebrew word for cave comes from nakedness or exposure of the pair, which seems opposite because you think cave, you're like, oh no, enclosure, but really it meant exposure. So like a reversal back to the garden where the two, um, they can be and they were naked, this cave, this land is, is not just a tent, but it is stone and it is owned. There's so many really cool things to see uh, that are going on and foreshadowing the rescue mission that the Lord is on um, to bring the Savior that will help to reconcile and redeem us back to Him and a relationship and what He called us to do. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.